Everybody's Stories. My name is H.W. Honeycutt. This is the inaugural edition of Everybody's Stories, a podcast about telling stories and talking about stories. If it's stories written down in books or filmed on television or in movies, we're up for talking about them. Even if it's stories uh, your grandma told you around the fire, heck yeah, bring them, bring them to the podcast. In this inaugural edition, I tell a little bit about my own story just to get us acquainted, get us started off on the right foot. And in my own story, I touch on literacy, affluenza, anarchism. It's kind of a mixed bag when you delve back into old Honeycutt's origins. I have a mystery co-host in this episode and you might not be able to hear him half the time but uh as steve park in the 2009 coen brothers film a serious man says accept the mystery so we'll just leave it at that um i have some exciting guest possibilities coming up um john yohi the poet is slated to uh be on um I don't have it locked in yet, but I'm in the midst of uh, confirming a bona fide television star to come on the podcast and talk to me. Also, if you really like uh, quality literary short stories, <clears throat> I'd invite you to subscribe to The New Yorker. But if you like stories from a guy who's just hanging on the ledge of life with his fingertips... You can go to hwhoneycut.blogspot.com and you can just uh, obliterate my heart with um, joy. So that's my short story of the month club there at hwhoneycut.blogspot.com. So without further ado, the inaugural episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. basically learned how to read because of a guinea pig like I refused to read and I was cheating on my homework up until about third grade and uh, my dad said he'd take away my guinea pig you know and uh, but even though I learned to read when I was eight years old and I could put the sentences together I didn't really like learn how to read until I was like 20 you know like the silver Jews have that line that says um, I was 19 and dead from the neck up and that was me for a long time. You know what changed it? I think going to France. Yeah. You know how? The first time? The first time. 
when I was 20. That was like, I spent a lot of money to get there, and I spent a lot of money in the course of the trip, but I feel like it was worth its weight in gold because there is a very good chance that I would have been born and lived and all I would have cared about is like getting a pair of Tommy Hilfiger pants or just like some, you know, worthless, fashionable consumption. Not saying I'm some great enlightened being now, but I actually attempt to uh, grapple with and read the great stories that, you know, if they're not important, then what do we got, man? Um, do you know how I got there? The money? Um, that was through a, a French system called the Martingale system. The Martingale system is a system of betting that's used in roulette where you bet an amount, say $5, and then if you lose the next time you bet $10, you lose the next time you bet $20, you lose the next time you bet $40, you lose the next time you bet $80, and you better hope that you win in the first five pulls, you'll get your $5 back. Um, it's not a foolproof system because you suffer a catastrophic loss and it can wipe out your bankroll, but you can ride it and get lucky enough. And, uh, that's what I did, except I was going in increments of 20 and I was taking home like, you know, Frank Sinatra sized bowling ball sized wads of cash. Yeah, just whipping out flip like a Sultan, not even counting it. Tip tip our heads to Brad Neely. Um, yeah, yeah, and um, and so and I stored it up until the point I think I had like three grand, and then like some money of my own, and I was gonna go to Reykjavik to the baths, um, to those hot baths, and. Um, and there was a gentleman who, uh, it's interesting, he actually, um, he backed out on appearing on this podcast, so that's kind of interesting. Maybe he has like a habitual uh, tendency to back out of things, but um, he backed out on going to Iceland. Maybe, just maybe, he'll hear this and like, you know, his heart will move to... To appear when he says, I'm going to make this right. But anyway, yeah, I was going to go to Reykjavik with that gambling money. And uh, and I was 20 years old. And um, it was my sister who said, maybe you should 
go to the land of our ancestors. And, you know, I, uh, I mean, at 20, I'd basically, you know, lost my folks by then. And, uh, I was in search of an identity. And so I said, yeah, let's go to the land of the ancestors. And I had not been studying French. I was arriving in the country by myself at age 20, and I only knew the words bonjour and merci. And that was it. And, you know, I even didn't even know how the metro worked. And so I just got into Charles de Gaulle and, like, handed a sheet of paper to a taxi driver and was, like, pointed to myself. I was like, me, go there, pointed to the sheet of paper. Oh, I was awful. I was a bad visitor at first, I, I reckon I was. Um, and I got to the hotel and I sat down and uh, I said, parlez-vous anglais? Do you speak English? And the man behind the counter was like, no, you're in France now. Well, he just gave me a look like, no, now what? And I was like, let me just have a seat. I didn't think this far ahead. And I got out my slip uh, that I like my hotels.com or whatever it was back in 2003 and um and I uh gave it to him and he you know found my name and figured it out and I just remember walking to my room looking at like the fire escapes written in French and English and uh everyone around me speaking a different language it was kind of mind blowing like and when you don't understand the language, you know, it's just like people are, I don't know, it's pretty, for the first time, you know, it's like that Joan Didion quote, like when you're in your early 20s, you think you're the first person to ever do this stuff. And that's what I felt like. And especially when I busted my guitar out in the youth hostels and, uh, had like eight or nine people gather around to hear me play comedy songs, just making fun of stuff. And then I would pack up my guitar and hit the sidewalk and the wind would be blowing and I just would pull my coat a little tighter. Met a woman from Texas who was like two years older than me. She's now a yoga instructor and a lawyer in San Francisco. Yeah, but she was just a young little Texan, uh, 20-some-year-old, and uh, she pulled my arm tight, and we're walking down the street, and I thought, like, destiny is looking at me, and I'm going to be the next Bob Dylan. Uh, it was, I might have had a case of affluenza. Um <laughs> No, I mean not really. I I just I'd won the money and I was the money was mine. I was actually I was eating every meal in Paris at um this place called Bip Burger. 
B.I.P. Burger. It was on the Boulevard Rochechouart. And, uh... Exactly. It was like Mr. Bip or Dr. Bip. And, um... And I, would, and I would go in there every night and just get a big cheese pizza. It was vegetarian. And I met this kid named Zach in the youth hostel. And, uh... I said, um... Would you like? Would anyone like to go to Bip Burger with me tonight? You know, I was like, you all know Bip Burger, and they're like, uh, and and uh, he was one of these like smug, uh, smug learned types. Uh, so, Where was he from? Minnesota. So I thought he was, and he and he looked at me and was like, I don't like Bips or burgers, and I was like, uh, what's a Bip? Yeah, what the fuck is a and he was like, oh, I don't actually know what a BIP is, you know. I was just kidding, but I don't like burgers because I'm a vegetarian. And I was like, actually, I'm a vegetarian too, and I, I get the cheese pizza. And he was like, oh, okay, you know. So we had the cheese pizza. We came back. I thrashed his ass at foosball. Wait, he went with you to BIP Burger? He got, yeah, he went to BIP Burger with me. I think he might have felt bad. So. <laughs> yeah. Like, really? I mean, I was kind of, I was friend hungry. You know, I was not only hungry for pizza. I was, I was friend hungry. See, what I did was the first, I kind of, you remember in, in uh, Hotel Chevalier when um, Jason Schwartzman just like checks into that hotel for like three months he now there's a case of affluenza but i was just like you know i got five grand to my name and i'm gonna spend four of it in paris and get back to michigan with a grand and hopefully and like you know no no folks to fall back on or anything like that so um but so what i did when i first got to paris was i um i just got a hotel for like 20 days and it plunked down like two grand to do it. And then I had to eat Bitburger to survive. Um, and, and it didn't help that the first three days I was like taking Mercedes taxis everywhere and stuff, like acting like I had affluenza or something. Did you get to know like the, the, the staff at the hotel like really well? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and there was a Polish uh, girl who went to the Sorbonne and she was just working as a clerk. Um, and like her name was uh, Violet. I remember she was like, I walked in and, and she actually spoke English too. So I was like, ah. And I would like go out for the day and then come back and tell her what I had done that day. And I'm sure she was just like so keen to hear it. She's probably like, let me get back to my magazine. But, um, you know, one time I was like, no, 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 no. What's your name? <laughs> <laughs> she said, she said, Violet. And I, and I think I fell to my knees. Like, you know, she was in the booth. Violet. Like, yeah. And I just fell to my knees and there was just like a thud. And she like looked out from the booth and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, that is a beautiful name. I was like, I'm from a small town in Michigan, and I've never heard the likes of it. You know, that's just amazing and yeah, beautiful. Yeah, didn't know any violence. Hell no. It was all, like, Jennifer's and Christie's and the biblical 
people were naming their kids like Ru- Sarai. Sarai and Ruth and Boaz and you know, oh, there, there was like 10 Boazes at least in, in the town. Um, but yeah, Vi- Violet was awesome. And, uh, but, but so I was in the hotel for like 20 days and I would just walk around and not speak to anyone and just write write songs on the guitar in the evening um, and like go to museums. So yeah, I was by the time I got to the youth hostel, I was pretty, um, I was friend starved. I was, well, let's face it, I was sex starved. Uh, and I was just, I, was, I wasn't starving, but I was hungry and, and I wanted the Bitburger. So yeah, Zach, um, Zach said, let's, you know, he was like, sorry. I was, he didn't say sorry, but he, I think he knew he was hard on me. And so we went to Bitburger and got some cheese pizzas and talked and stuff. Did you get to know the not too much. They didn't speak English, and they were s- slightly annoyed by me, rightfully so. And I think... I feel like you are pretty good about like, getting to know folks at yeah. food establishments that you go to on a regular day. Yeah. I think what... Um, like Indian Express. Yeah, they like me down there. I can be a good regular when I can converse, but they... Um, I think it made matters worse that not only did I not speak French, but I, um, I would say what I wanted in a French accent as if that would help. Yeah. You know, I would just say like, um, a slice of the cheese, <laughs> pizza, s'il vous plaît. And they would be like, it doesn't, okay, we understand cheese. I'd be like, um, yes, uh, the, the vegetarian uh, cheese. And they, you know, whatever. They were good sports. Um, I think at the end, since I was coming there every single night, like in the last day, um, they took a picture with me. Um, maybe they just wanted to get close to the Texas girl. But um, anyway. But yeah, Zach and I ate our thing. And he... Um, and he uh, um, gave me, well, we talked about just philosophy and stuff. And he was talking about, like, yeah, I'm reading Essays in Existentialism by Jean-Paul Sartre. And I was like, I don't know what a Sartre is. I don't know what an essay is. And I certainly don't know what existentialism is. And he let me borrow the book. I couldn't understand a goddamn word, but I appreciated him. Uh, doing that, I I actually had a book called The Book of Lists, and that helped me become interested in the world. There was stories in the book about people choking to death on toothpicks, people dying uh, looking at paintings of old hags, and that was just, you know, the list on uh, deaths from strange causes. There was, like, there was one called, like, 20 Wonderful Boners. Um, <laughs> it wasn't about, like, erections of men, though. It was about, um, they met mistakes by boners. 
and uh, one moves. boneheaded moves. One one of the boners was um, this guy in like Major League Baseball in like nineteen twenty seven or something. No, nah, the quiz, that was years before the quiz's time. Um, I think it was somebody O'Leary or something, but he hit a home run and ran around the bases backwards. Yeah, and, and people... Wait, like he went to third base? He started at third and went to second. He went to first base but ran backwards. Oh, no. He was going around the wrong bases. And people in the crowd were like, they were like, People are going to be talking about that boner for a hundred years. He was like so. It was an honest mistake. I think he like wasn't used to switch hitting. I should actually now. There's a good podcast thing. I should just get. I should delve into the book of lists and some of the. Um, but yeah. So I was I was reading the book of lists and um. And and I was just getting interested in and I realized that like, oh my God, like I am living on the strangest, most absurd planet. That's well, the only planet, but I'm living on an absurd and strange. It's the only planet we know of with life. I'm living on an absurd marble filled with life and I just became interested in the uh, affairs of people I think for the first time like before that I only cared about fashionable consumption and maybe winning like winning sports games Um, but uh, this so Zach was nice enough to um share his books with me and I remember we had this talk just about like politics and he was sort of like you know asking me about the war and like the war in Iraq and um health care and we talked for like five hours I think and there's this picture of he and I um and he's giving me a book called Steal This Book. And, uh, and I'm giving him the book of lists to read. And uh, he left the next day. And he, um, he slipped uh, Steal This Book by Abby Hoffman under my um, pillow. What a sweet. It was a real sweet gesture. And he enclosed a note. And he said... Um, Henry, to Henry, from one closet anarchist communist to another, Zach. And I thought that was um, that was sweet, and I hadn't forgotten it. And I read the Abby Hoffman book, and and uh, it kind of got me into um, interested in activism, yeah. and. Uh, and then I saw the film The Corporation and got into Noam Chomsky through that. Because that was like, that was pretty, you didn't know that you were like, an anarchist. No, no, I mean like, I feel like, 
No, like I didn't know what one was in like theory, and uh, the only thing I knew about an anarchist was that um, was that uh, one of them killed the president, Leon Chalgosh from Alpena, Michigan. He shot William McKinley, the president, and killed him. Yeah, like anarchists were like assassinating heads of state like all over the place. Nobody talks about it now. And uh, right before Leon Chalgosh got put in the electric chair, like he didn't talk for days before his trial um, or during his trial. And then he got convicted and they put him in the chair and they were like, do you have any last things to say? And he said, uh, I killed the president because he was an enemy to the good working people. And then they strapped him in, and then one of the guards claims that he then said with his teeth clenched, although I would have liked to see my father one last time. And then they, and then they killed him. <laughs> he was like, bye-bye. Mm, no. Um, yeah, and that and that's what I knew about an, an anarchist, but um I feel like maybe I always had that spirit though. Because if you think about like our friend group in high school, we were sort of always behaving like anarchists in the sense that like we were uh always defying the authority and we were always cr trying to carve out our own autonomous spaces. And we were always, we were making decisions like as democratically as possible with no hierarchy. Um, I mean, just take the bachelor's table, for example. Um, so like before France and before I'd learned about any sort of theory or, or literature, um, you know, we were, during lunch in my high school, we were, there was this little side closet where, uh, where they would keep folding chairs. It was a storage space. And it was a storage room, yeah, and so they would wheel the folding chairs out of there, and then me and you, were you in on it? Okay. And then, and about like six other people, so we got eight total, you know, the Van Buren boys, basically, um, eight of us. And uh, we would go in there and close the door. And it was like our own, like, autonomous zone. And we were doing crazy stuff in there, just like branding each other. I still have my brand on the side of my arm. And, uh, we would bring in like cauldrons, like huge cauldrons and like fill them up with fruity pebbles. And like we would eat the fruity pebbles like with such like vigor and like just like voraciously eating these fruity pebbles, like to, our mouths would bleed. We would eat them so like fiercely and we would call them, we would be like, oh, on Thursday we're gonna do bloody pebbles, you know? <laughs> and it it was disgusting and we all had these big wooden spoons but it was like we were all about community you know it was like yeah you know we're gonna um 
I mean, it was, you know, it was a masculine space, all-male space. There was that aspect to it. Um, probably quite homoerotic. Let's, 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 be let's be honest here, with, especially with the, I don't know. There was a lot of, like, peeing in bottles because people didn't want to leave. And, um, but yeah, so, and then they, when they finally kicked us out, uh, they said it was, that we were leaving too much, too many crumbs in there. And I just remember our, oh, that was, that was pure propaganda to, you know, scare us out of there. We, we weren't leaving any kind of crumbs. It was fine. They just needed a pretense, you know, to, to get it. Yeah, and um, the best part was when our friend mm, collapsed to his knees, and he was like, "Oh, it's just like Al Capone. They're doing all the, he was doing all this bad stuff. They got him for in, income tax evasion. We were branding each other, pissing in bottles, eating bloody pebbles, swearing like sailors, and they get us for crumbs. <laughs> we're <laughs> collapsing to his knees. They get us for crumbs." Yeah, I mean that was, you know. We went to a pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean there. I think there were other instances of what we would, of what you could call like direct action. I mean it was definitely our modus operandi to. Uh, well, there was nothing else to do. Yeah, y- yeah. But but whenever we wanted to do something, it was always like we just did it and then yeah. dared them to stop us or and when they and dealt with the yeah so. Um, but I so maybe I did learn something in school. I was just like cultivating. I was like cultivating a certain type of knowledge among, amongst friends, and then when it was time to. Uh, be unleashed um you know vanilla in terms of Yeah, like, right, like, no, nobody was getting stabbed and no one was getting pregnant. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, I feel like we did have a pretty, like, stark, uh, because there were so many rules dropped on us, it was like a small-ass private school, um, because there were so many rules dropped, not that any of us had influ- affluenza, it was like a... Um, you know, pretty podunk outfit, but, um, we, because we had all those rules dropped on us, like, just authority in all its guises just became a joke to the point where, you know, we were driving around the same bachelor's lunch table shut-ins, the Van Buren boys, basically, we're driving around in the back of an El Camino with ski masks on, and uh, had the, you know, police draw their weapons on us. Uh, they, 
thought we were going to rob a bank, obviously. Um, so, you know, yeah, there was some weird... I don't know, yeah. I'm surprised we got through that, like, as clean as we did. Yeah, absolutely. There... One of us could have flown out the back of that thing and yeah. cracked our skull. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of just, like, near-death near-death stuff, but um, but there wasn't reading going on. Did you read in high school? No. Yeah, I didn't. One book. What, which one? I can't remember. <laughs> I re- Do you remember, though? We had those tests. Yeah, those book tests, yeah. Book yeah, and I, I read Animal Farm because it was the slimmest, and... The only other one that I, um, I had, uh, I, I did Lord of the Flies, and I had our friend Jay come in, and uh, he would read the questions, and, um, and I, uh, he would tap, like, one, two, three for C, just one for A, and, you know, I got through it that way. Um, but, yeah, so... In terms of just thinking, you know, we, we, we got a good education in rebellion and, like, questioning authority, but in terms of, like, channeling that into, uh, into like, critical thought and knowing when and where and why to, to rebel and how to rebel and just how to think, you know, just try to not so much be concerned with the show, but just who's running the show like when somebody asks you who's going to win the Super Bowl, you know, if you're just thinking about the show, you're going to say Carolina Panthers. But if you're thinking about who's running the show, you're going to say like, well, you know, who's making the money off this, off the advertising and the, you know, what's the corporate sector doing that controls that and the NFL and, you know, it's like uh, actually, the most the stadium, uh, probably the most important anarchist thinkers, at least that I know um, of, are uh, poor, illiterate so, uh, uh, peasants in uh, uh, Aragon and yeah, Catalonia in 1936, who actually constructed a successful, uh, live uh, anarchist society over a large area, industrial and agricultural. Um, most of them were illiterate. Uh, they left documents. So there, there are some documents left which are extremely interesting. There was, and it wasn't, just, it wasn't spontaneous. This had been after efforts that had been going on for 70 years, uh, efforts that were uh, attempts to uh, crush, to uh, try again, you know, educational programs, all sorts of things. Finally, in the first year of the Spanish Revolution, it broke out and flourished. And it was so terrifying to everyone that uh, every single power uh, combined to crush it. Uh, the fascists, uh, Russia, liberal democracies, uh, put aside their differences to ensure that this would be crushed. And after they crushed it, uh, they went, you know, they fought the war as the war of succession. Well, you know, they were probably the most important anarchist thinkers. And the same is true everywhere. You take a look at the uh, say, IWW in the United States. I mean, those were important anarchist thinkers who actually carried out actions, which led finally to the development of the American labor movement. 
which had been bitterly suppressed. The U.S. has a very violent labor history. Actually, you know about it around here. Uh, the, uh, uh, but you know, their, their activities and others like them finally did lead to uh, uh, substantial successes. There's major attacks against them since, but those are successes of people who are constructing uh, uh, worker-managed uh, uh, community-run uh, uh, societies, which is a kind of an anarchist ideal. And th this is very deeply rooted in the United States. Uh, people forget what it's like. I mean, there was a, a period in American history of, uh, in which there was, a substantial, there was substantial victories for democracy through the 19th century. It was called, uh, you know, people write about it, call it the period of self-rule. It was based on the assumption, uh, which is very widespread in the United States, that wage labor is not very different from slavery. I mean, that was the slogan of northern workers who fought in the Civil War. In fact, it was even the slogan of the Republican Party. Uh, slavery is, of course, unacceptable, but so is wage slavery. You have to control your own fate. You read the uh, newspapers uh, written during the period of the freest press in the United States, the late 19th century, where working people were running, running their own newspapers, uh, communities, and others. Uh, people in the mills in eastern Massachusetts, origins of the American Industrial Revolution, uh, they're is what we would call anarchist. Uh, these are, you know, Irish artisans from the slums of Boston, uh, farm girls from what they called factory girls, young women coming off the farms into the mills. Uh, they just took for granted that those who work in the mills should own them, and that uh, we should uh, have, uh, 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 we should create our own self-managed society, integrating with others. That's a deep part of American history. It takes a lot of effort to crush it. On that utopian note, um, I think we've come to the end of the evening. Thank you all very much, and thank you. N-O-A-M, Noam Chomsky taking us home on this inaugural episode of Everybody's Stories. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time on Everybody's Stories. My name is H.W. Honeycutt. Goodbye. <laughs>